Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and welcome to uh, this afternoon's panel, which is uh, Federal Control of Information in the National Security State. Uh, if anyone in the back can't hear any of us, please let us know now. <laughs> My name is Judith Miller. I write for the New York Times, and I write primarily about national security and foreign policy issues. That is to say, I've been very busy lately, and I expect to be extremely busy in the near future. We have uh, here today a very distinguished panel uh, to discuss what is a very complicated and very controversial set of issues. Uh, the subject that we're supposed to discuss today uh, is how open a government should we have. And obviously, for journalists, there's only one, and writers, there is only one answer to that, and that is as open a government as possible. And we find increasingly that the government seems to uh, ha take another view. The government, any government, has uh, an interest in keeping secrets and in minimizing uh, a lot of uh, information, which the uh, disclosure of a lot of information which it considers to be sensitive. Today we're going to be concentrating on government efforts, various government efforts, to stop the flow or the disclosure of sensitive national security information. But I would point out, just by way of intro introduction, that there are many ways uh, that government controls information. And perhaps the most effective way is not in trying to stop the flow of information, but in giving it to you. And if you, any of you have ever had the privilege and pleasure of attending a State Department briefing, a White House briefing, or a similar affair at the Pentagon, I think you'll know exactly what I mean. They are uh, oftentimes not terribly helpful, but the government feels that it is doing its part to inform the public. And of course, we, the press, lap it up, and we always appear <coughs> there for these daily sessions. But we'll be discussing today other ways in which government controls or attempts to affect the uh, flow of information, and I'd like to introduce the panelists right now to you. Uh, sitting on my left is uh, Blanche Cook, who is the author of The Declassified Eisenhower, A Divided Legacy of Peace and Political Warfare. And she is a historian and journalist, holds a PhD from Johns, Johns Hopkins University, is a professor of history at John Jay College uh, at uh, SUNY. Uh, to sitting to Blanche's left is Cord Meyer, who uh, has had a long and distinguished career in uh, the national intelligence apparatus. Uh, he is now a nationally syndicated columnist and a competitor, I might add, who is responsible for breaking the story on uh, the appointment of Max Hugel to one of the most sensitive intelligence posts in our government. <clears throat> he is uh, also author of Peace or Anarchy and Facing Reality. He's a Yale graduate and a retired captain of the Marine Corps. And of course, the relevant, truly relevant uh, data about him is that he was associate deputy director for operations in the CIA from 1951 to 1977. Sitting to my right is Bob Borisage, an old friend from Washington and now uh, is the director of the Institute for Policy Studies, which has also been the subject of uh, considerable uh, uh, controversy in the uh, 
in the media of late. He has been uh, an activist in civil liberties and public interest issues, and he's published a number of articles uh, with uh, another person who is here in the audience today uh, with John Marks, uh, The Lawless State, Crimes in U.S. Intelligence Agencies, that he's done with Morton Halpern. And finally, uh, last but certainly not least, sitting to my far right is Charles Renfrew, who is Deputy Attorney General of the United States from February 1980 to January 1981. He is a partner at Pillsbury, Madison & Sutro. He is a member of the Council on the Role of Courts, the U.S. Department of Justice and the International Society of Barristers, and the American College of Trial Lawyers. We have a lot of ground and a lot of issues to cover today, and so I've asked each of our panelists to discuss uh, one issue uh, briefly. That is, uh, <clears throat> and then we will throw the, the, dis the, the discussion open for general panel discussion of these six issues, the six issues that we're going to discuss today, and finally, uh, to be, this to be followed by questions, and I hope they really will be questions directed to panelists uh, from the audience. The issues include the Freedom of Information Act, uh, the set of, uh, secondly, the set of recent court cases, three, uh, legislation to protect the identities of uh, intelligence agents, four, disinformation, five, the new executive order which the Reagan administration is uh, planning to uh, unveil soon, and uh, finally, polygraphs and other efforts to stop the leaks of classified information. So I'm going to start with uh, Freedom of Information, and I'm going to introduce Blanche Cook to discuss this issue and what's happening in this area. Great. Uh, I'm going to stand up, if that's okay. No, you better sit down. You better sit down. Um, it's really very important to discuss freedom of information in terms of what journalists and historians do. Uh, it's really not a question of a national security state and freedom of information. It's really a question of censorship and political rights on every single level. One of the things that I'd like to say very specifically is that my book could not have been written. This is a book that deals with disinformation. It deals with what I became obsessed with, namely the overthrow of the Arbenz government in Guatemala in 1954. I became obsessed with it because in many, many months at the Presidential Library in Abilene, the Eisenhower Library, I couldn't find one single document that related to that event. And if I didn't know that it happened, I would not know that it happened from going through literally miles of documents. <coughs> and we deal here now with the fact of something called the Freedom of Information Act. Um, it was strengthened in 1975 after the uh, Watergate scandals sort of exposed cracks in uh, really essentially the ruling class uh, establishment. Uh, Nixon had just gone too far even for, you know, some of his friends at the CIA. And we began to have then the Church Committee, the Pike Committee. Um, and things began slowly to get exposed. I think it's very important that the information we now have about FBI and CIA excesses would not have emerged. For example, the COINTELPRO program, the dirty tricks, the sleazy, mean-minded activities that harassed every 
black organization, Martin Luther King, Gene Seberg, we all know these facts now. None of that would have ever seen the light of day in a journalist's pen if it weren't for an illegal break-in on the part of peace movement activists in Media Pennsylvania that exposed the COINTELPRO operation now. Now, the government today is attempting to end our access to this information, to exempt the FBI, to exempt the CIA, to exempt the DIA, to exempt the Department of Defense. In addition to that, I'd like to emphasize one area. I said that my book could not have been written today. It was published in June, but it couldn't be written today. Why do I say such an outrageous thing? The reason is very simple. There is operating right now in Washington something called the CDC, which is the Classification Declassification Center. And the CDC was uh, formed by Carter in, a, in an executive order to have actually more efficiency in the release of documents. Instead of more efficiency in the release of documents, the CDC is staffed almost entirely, well, I should say entirely, by retired Foreign Service officers who were active in the 50s and 60s. And what they did, they were mandated to begin the classification, declassification process with 1955. Instead, they unilaterally decided they had to go back to 1950. And what they did was to reclassify material that had been declassified by the State Department, by the <coughs> CIA, saying, well, now things have gotten too sensitive. Um, things that have been desensitized have become resensitized. We want to de reclassify this material. And as a result, in terms of the State Department's foreign uh, policy volumes, which were mandated by Congress to appear basically 20 years after the fact, it is now 30 years after the fact, and the 1950s volumes have not appeared. They were scheduled to appear. 30 volumes were scheduled to appear. The CDC began its operation, and 20 of those volumes were literally withheld in various stages of publication. That is to say, in advanced page-proof stage. Some were even bound galleys, and some were bound volumes. They have been absolutely withheld. The whole series has been suspended. The volumes on Iran, the volumes on Central America have been utterly closed. Now, one volume was scheduled to come out at 2,020 pages. Big volume, very important time, 1955 and 56, Soviet Union and Central Europe. You can imagine. That volume was reclassified so that if it came out now, 400 of those 2,000 pages would come out. Now, what are we hiding? My first interest as an historian and a journalist was in the peace movement of the First World War. And I was intrigued by the notion that the First World War era activists had that if we got into the First World War, we would Prussianize American society, that militarism would destroy democracy. And they had these wonderful phrases like open covenants openly arrived at. And they had other phrases, uh, you know, about the, the freedom of information. They didn't use that particular word, to know what governments were doing so there wouldn't be secret treaties. Well, of course, after World War II, all of their predictions have come utterly true, and we now live in an utterly 
militarized situation when it comes to access to information. And I'd like to say something very bluntly, which is a quotation from a man named Warren Sussman, an historian, who said, in 1962, let's face facts, Adolf Hitler, Hitler had no more executive authority than John F. Kennedy. Now, we could say they used it differently. Of course, indeed, they did. But when we talk about executive authority, who is in control, what access to information we have, that is really increasingly the situation, and we face a very perilous future. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I should say that uh, each uh, of our panelists will have a chance to respond to the other panelists, and I imagine that there'll be some disagreement about uh, <laughs> some of what Blanche has said. All right. Uh, secondly, I'd like to introduce to you Cord Meyer, who's going to discuss uh, the SNEP and AG cases and other recent court actions intended to uh, stop uh, former agents from publishing information that they gathered during the course of their employment with the federal government. Mr. Meyer? Uh, if, if I can't be heard, please speak up at the back of the room. I'd like to correct the introduction. I, I was from 67 to 73 in that job, not from 51, just for the record. I'm not that old. Uh, this is a very, the SNEP case and this whole problem is a complex and difficult issue. I know personally about it because I wrote a book myself after I resigned from the agency in the fall of 77. And under the terms of my secrecy agreement with the agency, I was required to submit my manuscript for review prior to publication, which I did, believing the reason I did it was one, because my secrecy agreement under oath required me to. Secondly, I was aware of the fact that as an individual with a fallible memory, I could not be sure that I had actually uh, avoided giving to the Russian KGB in the course of what I wrote information that it did not already have and that would be exceedingly useful to it. And we should remember, after what Ms. Cook said that, and uh, Ms. Miller, that it's a, I would phrase what Ms. Miller said a little bit differently. I think I believe, as a working journalist, that the all sources should be as open as possible, provided the security of the country can be preserved and our civil liberties preserved in the process. And that means our capacity to defend ourselves effectively against what we're up against, which is a one-party police state in Moscow. And uh, you can see what it's doing in Afghanistan, how it's trying to crush the first true workers' revolution that this world has seen in the 20th century in Poland, and its threat in terms of power and expansion is very real. Anyone who disputes that, I would be glad to argue with. But we have that problem, and we should not ignore it. Now, given that reality, it seems to me that the agency and, other, and the NSA similarly should have the right to call on former employees to submit for review for the specific and only purpose of trying to identify anything in that written document that might give new information to the KGB that was vitally important to it. Real security I'm talking about here, not phony issues, not critical comment. And uh, after I submitted my, my book, I received the first cut at it back. They conformed to the requirement to complete the review in 30 days. I got it back, and there were two 
places where I had seriously and without knowledge and without understanding what I was doing, I had given information that would have been of extreme value to the KGB and which it did not already have. So in that sense, the review process performed its proper function. In addition, they tried to cut a chapter that I wrote on the KGB, which I thought uh, made no sense. In other words, everything that was in that chapter they already knew, and I couldn't see the argument for cutting that material. So I peeled that cut up the line within the agency to the general counsel's office. When it got to the general counsel's office, much wiser heads prevailed. They could see the logic of the position I was taking, and they abandoned their position and allowed that chapter to be included in the book almost intact. I should also point out that in this process, I was prepared to go to the courts, which I have a right to do under the law. In other words, if the review process conducted internally within the agency is viewed by the author to be <coughs> capricious and arbitrary, he has the right, under the regulation and the law, to appeal to a federal court for a review of that issue on that very question. And the knowledge that that right exists and that the federal courts stand behind the author is the most crucial and effective protection, it seems to me, for, for the freedom of information that we're talking about. So we have here then a very narrow question. Does the agency have the right to review manuscripts by former employees for writing about intelligence, for <coughs> the specific and only sole purpose of removing serious security breaches that would be significantly helpful to the KGB, or does it not have that right? This issue has now been decided by the Supreme Court. The right exists. The Snep case decided it. And in the future, those of us who previously worked in the agency, if we're writing about intelligence from our knowledge of it, uh, will have to submit uh, our manuscripts for review. Now, there's one recent development that I don't like, and that is Civiletti, the former attorney general, before he left office, drafted up a guideline as to what the issues should be under which uh, this kind of review would have to be undertaken. And they were, it was very clear, it was, it made it very apparent that the government was not going to proceed unless there was a major security problem involved. It, in effect, offered a considerable amount of protection uh, to the individual writer. That has now been rescinded by a statement by the attorney, the present attorney general, which is a very broad uh, threat, to the, not threat, very broad promise, in effect, to exercise this authority as the attorney general may see fit in any and all cases. It does, it seems to me, by the difference in the standards employed, change the terms under which the government now has exercises the right to review books by former intelligence officials. To my mind, the latest uh, shift uh, is much less satisfactory to me as a journalist and to others in my same position. Uh, that, in brief, is okay. the case. Thank you. We're now going to move on to uh, Charlie Renfrew and a discussion of the legislation which is pending in the Senate and which has been passed by the House that would uh, prevent uh, or help is aimed at helping to protect the identities of former intelligence, mm -hmm. former and current intelligence agents. Yes, I'd like to just follow up a little bit in, in, uh, on what uh, 
Cord Myers said, uh, in the Carter administration, after the SNEP decision came out in February, we started in May to take a look at the whole question of uh, the type of guidelines that we felt should be promulgated in order to uh, give some consistency within the government and also to uh, make it clear that uh, we did not have in this country uh, an unofficial judicially created uh, secrecies act. And what we essentially did was set out four guidelines. And the first was to make it clear that the guidelines applied in those cases where there was either a contract with a government employee or he worked in an agency that had regulations that required pre-publication clearance. Secondly, the procedures for the clearance uh, met uh, all the due process requirements for the employee whose work was being reviewed. Thirdly, the guidelines distinguish between a suit brought against an employee who either served under regulations that required pre-publication clearance or who had a contract that required that and distinguish between such a suit against such a person for damages for the effect of constructive trust that was found in SNAP and an action against a third party which might require some sort of pre-publication restraint and made it very clear that in the latter case that before a publisher or newspapers could be involved that they had two elements that had to be satisfied. One, they knew about the pre-publication clearance and secondly with that knowledge, they uh, sought and actively obtained the cooperation of the employee to avoid that uh, clearance. So I think those guidelines, uh, which I must say, in, in fairness to the Reagan administration, we didn't finally adopt until the 9th of December, 1980, which was really the autumn of our administration, uh, were set aside uh, just recently by Attorney General Smith. And he did say one thing, Court. He said that he was going to uh, provide the continuity and consistency and that he would do so consistent with First Amendment rights and guarantees. And I think if he does that, we don't have any, any cause for concern. It's just we felt it was a little easier to do with uh, guidelines than to have it all in one person's head. But it will remain to see how it works out. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the present administration's bill, but we in the Carter administration did seek to obtain passage of what we call the Agent's Identity Bill, and uh, starting with the same premise that CORD does, that there is a tough, cold world within which we operate. And I think it's uh, in those who have had access to declassified information, I'm sure, and many journalists have, know exactly how cold and tough a world it is. We were concerned about uh, the problem of uh, American covert agents abroad uh, being identified and uh, where that uh, uh, uncovering them was a real threat to their personal safety. At the same time, we were well aware that we did not wish to stop responsible journalists. Uh, Cy Hirsch, uh, we almost call it the Cy Hirsch uh, uh, bill, but uh, make it clear that this is not what we were after. We didn't want an investigative reporter who felt that there was something wrong that uh, identified the person, that uh, that, that type of situation was uh, to, to, be, to make him a criminal. So what we tried to do was to make it unlawful if you follow a pattern and a practice, or a practice, and intentionally uh, disclose the identity of an undercover agent with the intent 
to undermine or impair, destroy his or her effectiveness in admission abroad, then that was a criminal act. And as I say, we had those specific intent elements and, and the pattern in practice. Now, what they've come up with right now, I, I, I simply am not uh, okay, aware. Okay. Well, Cord, you want to take well, over you're, and you're just... pretty good on that, too. <laughs> but uh, uh, basically, we've got a very confused situation in the Congress on this issue now. You have a situation where Eddie Boland, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, failed to get passage in the House of his bill on this agent protection <coughs> identity issue uh, by the fact that uh, the intent clause was removed on the House floor. The next step in this drama was the vote in the Senate Intelligence Committee, whereby nine to eight vote, they put the intent clause back into the bill. Just by way of explanation, I, some of you may not know it. That is, one, the, the government would have to demonstrate Intent. that the person who uh, published this information intended uh, to harm the agent in question. I just might, uh, so that the issue is now up for uh, decision in the, in, the Senate floor, in the Senate floor decision, and then if, if, if there are differences between the two bills, they have to go to conference. Uh, I would just like to make one point here that hasn't been made, which is that uh, it is really quite impossible to expect uh, an effective intelligence operation to be run by the United States abroad unless there is some protection of this kind offered. Now, I think a large majority of the American people after Pearl Harbor agreed that we should have some form of effective intelligence to give us advance warning of impending attack. Uh, and I think that most Americans today very strongly believe that. Now, if you're going to have effective intelligence and agents capable, able to collect it abroad, you're going to have to have secrecy. You're going to have to protect them. You're going to have to protect their identities. And this cannot be done under a situation where it is perfectly fair and legal for people like Philip A.G. and the Covert Action Information Bulletin to sequentially name in successive issues of their publications 30 to 40 uh, CIA officials serving overseas under diplomatic cover in each successive issue. This effectively destroys these people's usefulness, it destroys their careers, it makes the whole training that has gone into preparing them for their jobs uh, useless, and it endangers their lives. So that there is a clear and necessary need for this type of legislation. The issue still to be decided in the Congress is whether the intent clause uh, should be included or not. In my mind, I think it probably should be included. It's that at this point is, is an open question, but I just want to correct something that I said. It's they have to show intent to impede intelligence activities, uh, which may in fact result in harm to an agent. We're now going to move on to uh, another hot topic uh, in Washington, certainly. That is the new executive order being prepared by the Reagan administration, which will govern intelligence activities. And to discuss that, I'm going to turn to Bob Borisage. Can we have a question for war first? No, we're going to, if in, in the. In the beginning, as if you were here in the beginning, I announced what the structure was going to be. I, I hope that you will let us adhere to that structure, which is first a, a discussion of each of the items in each of the topics by panelists, and then we will have a discussion from the panelists and finally questions from the floor. There will be an opportunity to ask questions, all right? Thanks, Bob. Uh, I'm going to uh, follow the, my predecessors and talk about each of the issues that have been covered thus far, as well as the executive order, very briefly. The discussion, I think, has been valuable for everybody, even if it's been somewhat technical, because it exposes to you the kind of 
Kafkaesque wor uh, world of the intelligence debate and information debate in Washington, D.C., where the liberal position is that we should have an intent to impede intelligence agencies when you publish the names of agents, and the conservative position is anybody who mentions an agent, whoever he is, ought to be thrown in uh, jail. And neither of those, of course, have anything to do with uh, the First Amendment or the questions of censorship. Let me try to put it into a broader perspective and then talk about some of the specifics in this quite bizarre world. Uh, the United States has a secrecy system which has basically grown up under uh, the authority of executive orders, orders issued by the president without legal authorization. Grew up uh, primarily in wartime and then it, when we decided we would extend the war to a permanent Cold War and a global policy of engagement after World War II, it was kept in fact uh, for the last 30 years. <laughs> According to the GAO, we now classify what they call a classification act, 70 to 100 million pieces of paper or documents a year. Uh, of that 70 to 100 million a year, uh, the GAO estimates, although no one can count, that at least a quarter are wholly improper and many more uh, shouldn't be classified. Now for 20 years the system worked well without law, basically, because there was a consensus in politics. America wore the white hats, the Soviet Union wore the black hats, we represented the free world always capitalized. And uh, we were out to do good. And the CIA operated behind that consensus, uh, doing bad in the name of good, and was specifically set up uh, secretly through secret executive orders to do the things, in the, in the words of the Hoover Report, the things that you wouldn't want to admit that you were doing to the American people. Uh, and for, as I say, for about 20, 25 years, it worked well. Now, all of a sudden, we have this flurry of lawmaking. Why do we have this flurry of lawmaking? We have it because the consensus is over. It disappeared in the jungles of Vietnam, and both from within these intelligence agencies and without, people are questioning what the hell they're doing and why they're doing it. So particularly the Jesuits and Catholics of the CIA are starting to go public with their past, uh, some, many of them feeling like they have to regain uh, some morality and some moral respect for themselves by apologizing for what they've done. Others are writing books to uh, explain what they've done and to defend the agency. There are said to be some 200 books that are being considered by CIA agents. And that is part of the public debate that we are, we are all having inside and outside these, this covert operation, this security apparatus about what America is doing in the world and what it ought to do. The response of the state to this legitimacy crisis has been to try to develop brick by brick a legal wall of secrecy around what has previously been just an informal practice of classification so that that secrecy can be enforced and so that people who want to go public or reporters who want to report on it can be deterred in doing it or publishers deterred in it. One brick is the line of cases leading up to the SNAP decision which basically says that uh, people who have access to classified information and have agreements with the government as a condition of their employment not to reveal that information can be either restrained by prior censorship or sued for money damages if they avoid it. It also says that any publisher who, or third party who actively solicits that publication can be also liable to those suits. It's not clear whether a publisher who actively seeks to publish the books of CIA people, for example, would not, that avoid pre-publication review would not be liable under the Carter guidelines now revoked, presumably to be more, made more serious. 
That's one brick. That brick does not just apply to the CIA. It applies to anybody who signs an agreement with the government about prepublication. And you can be certain that in the next years, everyone with access to classified information is going to be required to sign those employment agreements. And you are going to have an entire national security bureaucracy uh, under the same kind of restrictions that these CIA employees find themselves. The second brick has been what's called the Phil Agee Bill, the Names of Agents Bill. This is designed in an extraordinary process to punish criminally American citizens who publish information about agents, names of agents, which is publicly available, which is available not under classified uh, documents, but is available by doing research on public documents. Now, this strikes me as an absolutely bizarre bill. It arises because the State Department's foreign service officers wanted nothing more to do with the CIA than we do. So they refused to give them FSO cover. Because they refused to give them FSO cover, you can identify roughly, not, not with exact accuracy, but you can identify roughly who CIA operatives are over the course of years operating under State Department cover because they're all listed as FSRs or other classifications, and they're easy to pick out when they've been there for a number of years. Because of this bureaucratic warfare, we are now going to say that the First Amendment does not apply and that there is going to be criminal liability for citizens publishing material that is publicly available. Quite an extraordinary process to get to. <coughs> the, uh, the strange thing about you want me to go ahead? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, the, uh, okay, let me just go then. What all of this then I think is about is about trying to bolster legally and through the process of the courts and through the process of threats a consensus that no longer exists about what should happen and whether one should be secret about it since it seems very illegitimate. It's particularly necessary to do that when you have an agency like the CIA, which has entered its Baroque or decadent period, where you have Wilsons and Turples who may or may not be connected with people who may or may not be in the agency operating in ways which we are certainly are not proud of. When you have former Cuban clients and agents of the CIA engaged in terror in this country, uh, for, at a time like that, any agency worth its salt will try to find whatever protection it can to keep you from knowing what it's doing and what its former or current associates are doing. Now, the second part of it, of course, is that the Reagan administration is a little worse, not much, but a little worse than the Carter administration in these questions. They are now going to come out with an executive order uh, for giving guidelines to the intelligence agencies which, according to all reports, <laughs> particularly the reports of Ms. Miller, uh, is going to be the worst uh, claim of executive power made by a president uh, in peacetime in the history of the United States. They are talking, according to the rumors in Washington and their newspaper reports, about allowing the CIA the authority to do covert operations at home. They are, this is the same CIA, by the way, who wants the names of its agents protected from publication from citizens who find out that information from public sources or from non-classified ways. Uh, they are said to want to create a, a unified intelligence computer, counterintelligence computer, to <coughs> gather the names of uh, everyone who uh, may or may not be associated with the red threat 
The Heritage Foundation report, which is said to be the Bible of the administration, states that the people connected with the red threat may run everywhere from liberal clergymen on, and you can't tell ahead of time, so you have to surveil them all. So that just as there's one side is the building of the bricks of the wall, the second side is the assertion of authority, which the executive order represents. Okay. The last issue, which I'm just going to say a few words about, is polygraphs and the effort to expand uh, the polygraph system to any government official who has access to highly classified, what we call compartmented information, information given out on a need-to-know basis. This is uh, an idea which uh, is not the brainchild of the, uh, the Reagan administration. It's been around for a long time. The Carter administration contemplated it. Nixon administration contemplated it. It has strong resistance from the Foreign Service. Uh, jokingly, the Foreign Service officers say, we don't want to take lie detector tests because we lie for our country every day and get paid for it. Uh, but seriously, they are, it, is, it has strong institutional uh, resistance. At present, the NSA, the CIA, and I believe uh, on occasion DIA actually uses polygraphs both as part of a background check when an employee is initially hired, and sometimes it is used uh, as, as part of a five-year update of that employee's uh, <clears throat> background check, and finally it is used and this is obviously what journalists are most concerned about. It is used to try and trace who it was that might have given out, without disclosure, some information which has embarrassed the government. Uh, that information may or may not be classified. But for example, when the last draft of the executive order that had been prepared by the Reagan administration was uh, leaked to the New York Times, every member of the Senate Intelligence Committee was threatened, staff was threatened with a polygraph. I might add, just to end this conversation, that no senator was actually asked to take such a test, nor is it likely that any of them ever would be. So, so all right, we are now going to, uh, these are the basic issues you've heard. Uh, both what the issues are and how each of the panelists feel about these issues. What I'd like to do is basically uh, start with our first Freedom of Information Act, Act uh, presentation and ask uh, Cord Meyer, since I think he might take issue with uh, Blanche's uh, presentation, why the government, in his view, should have the right to exempt the CIA and other national, national security agencies from the Freedom of Information Act. I don't think I'd go that far. In other words, I think that what is required is some protection to the foreign governments that give us information for our joint use. Many of you may not realize this, but in the world today, the uh, cooperation between intelligence agencies in the United States and in Western Europe and in other countries is quite critical to the attempt to control international terrorism and to prevent terrorist acts from taking place. Uh, the cases that I know of uh, where we were successful in penetrating and, and preventing terrorist incidents from occurring were usually those in which uh, maybe we had part of the story, the French may have part of the story, the English another part of the story. The capacity to exchange that information quickly and to do it in such a way that you know when you're, doing, when you're exchanging that extremely sensitive information that it will be protected and not leaked is absolutely critical 
to the first line of defense against terrorism, which is the ability to know in advance when the event is going to take place and to prevent it from occurring and to save the innocent victims. So that uh, it seems to me uh, clear on the record, as, as testimony has indicated, in the House and Senate committees, that the way the present Freedom of Information Act works has led to a sharp drop-off on the willingness of, of the intelligence services of democracies abroad to cooperate with the United States on the very crucial issue of controlling international terrorism. Now, in view of that problem, it would seem to me wise to exempt from the reach of the Freedom of Information Act information provided to us by foreign governments of that kind. And I don't see how you could argue against it. If we don't do that, we are certainly not going to be in a position to cope with this riding, rising tide of terrorism, which was brought to a dramatic head by the assassination of Sadat. I'd like to, uh, if I may, put this into another context. What we're really talking about is political warfare. And political warfare is about words. And words like terrorism and the free world uh, and democracy is about political warfare. Now, Arno de Borsgrave has gotten a lot of space because he talks about disinformazioni. <laughs> and he insists that it's a Russian word. Well, if you look at my book, this is a paid political announcement for my book, I talk about misinformation, which is about words, which has been practiced as part of political warfare in a very conscientious way since it was the psychological warfare board. That's what it used to be called. It used to be called psychological warfare. And it's about words. Now, what are these words? We've just been told that because we're defending the United States against terrorists, we should have our lonely agents in connection with other lonely Democrats in these terrorist places protected. What we're talking about, if you look at it from another point of view, is we're talking about destabilization. Now, let me destabilization of other. Just take the example of the most recent issue of covert action. The most recent issue of covert action has indeed a very long list of Puerto Rican policemen who were trained by the FBI in places like Quantico. Now that's part of an, a very organized policy, very organized program to train police agents in destabilization, torture, infiltration, and those names listed by covert action represent a real threat locally presumably in the Puerto Rican community where maybe, you know, the nationalists don't want to have these secret agents in their groups. So if you know who it is who's the spy among <laughs> you, well, that really makes the effort a little more difficult. If you look at the way this is funded, if you look at the way it is programmed, you see, you begin to see what we're talking about, which is political warfare gone somewhat amok because we're also dealing with, let's use the word, terrorism. We're dealing with assassination. We're dealing with torture. You can't look at what's happening in Guatemala today without using terms like terrorism. People disappear. The entire faculty of the law school, the University of San Carlos, has been threatened with death. The president of the university has been killed because he agreed to bury the student body president on the campus after the student body president was killed after he gave a speech about Yankee imperialism and other things. Now, this is terrorism. What do you call it? Do you call it democracy at work? Do you see? So this is all within a framework, a context of a world, frankly, 
In revolt. Well, in revolt against what? We have to begin to name these things. There's a wonderful letter in my book on Eisenhower in which Eisenhower uses in 1951 the word capitalism. And he gets a letter from uh, his friends, a whole variety of friends. The particular letter that I'm quoting is, a, is the head of uh, Coca-Cola International uh, who writes him, Dear Ike, you shouldn't use that word capitalism. You know, in Europe it has a very bad meaning. And in the United States, it can be used to damn us and all our causes. And so Ike writes back saying, well, you know, I mean a profit economy. And they write back saying, well, think of another word, like a customer economy. <laughs> and for those of you who went to college in the 50s, as I did, perhaps you remember, none of us were capitalists and none of us were workers. You know, the proletarian lived abroad and they were un-American. Now, we have a whole mindset because we have a classless society. We are a free society, and they are a slave society. They perform terrorism, and we either support them or don't, do you see? That's what these words are about. That's what these documents are about. That's what the issue of misinformation is about. And if you are a working journalist, if you are a reporter, if you are an historian, you need these documents because you need to have these words, and you need to know how these words have created a society that is in great disarray, along which there, there's much violence going on. And we need to see who's getting money to commit those acts of violence. And it's really a very political question, ultimately, isn't it? Would she answer, would she respond directly to Cord Meyer's assertion that we should, in fact, not permit the disclosure of information provided by foreign intelligence agencies because of his argument that it has a deterrence uh, effect, uh, it, it lessens their willingness to cooperate with our intelligence agencies. Would she address that issue, that point? Do you think that... Uh, well, I think it's a false issue, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that people who are going to be doing intelligence work are going to be taking great risks, as they always have. And I think that the real issue is that, is that this is a war. It's a political war on one level, and it's a real war of life and blood and death on another level. Um, I think that in the United States, we have, you know, one of the things that I heard recently on television was somebody who uh, represented the Heritage Foundation saying, no other country in the world has such a Mickey Mouse law as the freedom of information. Now, why should we have such a Mickey Mouse law? Um, in the very beginning, Cord Meyer talked about how the Soviet Union is a police state, how the Soviet Union is a repressive country, how you cannot get information in the Soviet Union, and that, frankly, is true. Every single document in the Soviet Union is classified. You can't get World War I documents out of the Soviet Union. And the issue really is, do we want to imitate them? No, in the battle uh, for hearts and minds, are we going to have to do to our journalists and our reporters and our historians what they do routinely? If I could just narrow it a bit, there, <laughs> <laughs> there are exemptions already in the Freedom of Information Act that protect legitimately classified information. And as far as I know, there has been in the history of all of the litigation around the uh, FOIA uh, against the CIA, among others, there has been one decision at a lower level which released two two, three sentences of two paragraphs which the agency did not want released. In all other cases, what the agency finally agreed to give is what they gave, and no court forced them to give what they didn't want to give. 
that decision was appealed, and as far as I know, that appeal hasn't been resolved. It is still on appeal. I'd like to just add one thing to that, and then I'll stop for a while. And that is that in the process of writing this book, I appealed for 80,000 documents, and about two-thirds of the documents that I finally got, I got with blank pages for, I mean, let's say I got a report on the Middle East, a 1957 report on the Middle East. It was a 42-page report. Two pages had typewritten paragraphs. All the rest, and I paid 15 cents a page for this, all the rest were blank. And that security classification that is already protecting the various agencies of origins for what they say, you know, is, is needful for national security purposes. There's one big uh, fact that none of us have referred to, which is really crucial to this discussion, and that is the fact that in October 14th of 1980, the Congress passed the Congressional Oversight Act, Intelligence Oversight Act. Under the terms of that legislation, which is now binding law, uh, the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, the two committees of the Congress specifically seized with this problem, are entitled to receive and to obtain all information whatsoever that they require in the conduct of their job. So that we now have, for the first time in a democracy, the British don't attempt to do this, the French don't attempt to do it, but we in this democracy have now created a congressional oversight system that gives the people of the United States the knowledge that both the majority party and the minority party are represented in two separate committees with large staffs that have complete access to all information that they require and have legal right to that information. So that what we have created here is a method of legislative review and oversight that in my mind is the best protection that we could have against abuse of secret authority and power. This is a big step that this country has taken. It's to some extent an experiment. We don't know yet how well it will work. There are some signs that it doesn't work so well when it comes to some issues. But on balance, I think in spite of all the dangers that it raises and the problems that it raises as far as security is concerned, that it's a step worth having taken. And I think we can all be satisfied and pleased with the fact that that kind of protection now is built in to our congressional review process. And it therefore makes it much less necessary to have other steps taken, because here you have the Congress itself engaged in the review and the monitoring process. It's a really substantial change in the sense that this is now law instead of being based on executive order. I would hope that, uh, at least it's been my experience, and I hope it will continue to be so, that one of the first prerequisites of a journalist and a writer would be a natural, healthy skepticism. And I would hope your natural, healthy skepticism and intellectual curiosity would <clears throat> be applicable to all questions put before you. So if the United States Congress determines to give you popular name legislation, which embodies noble purposes in the title, that you aren't therefore willing to accept everything in that bill as being good and any attempt to amend it as being bad. And I'm talking about the whole uh, peripheral of bills we have in this country, whether we call it the clean air or the clean <coughs> water. You have to know something about what those bills contain to see if they even <coughs> perform the purpose that, that they embody. 
but, but simply because someone says they wish to amend the Freedom of Information Act does not mean that they are against both freedom and information. Let me give you an example. Under the Freedom of Information Act, there is an exemption for protection where the life of a law enforcement officer is in danger. One of the amendments we sought to obtain was where the life of any citizen was in danger, whether it was a law enforcement officer or not. So take a look at what the specific proposals are as a writer. Simply because someone says they wish to amend the Freedom of Information Act doesn't make that amendment bad of itself. You have to go a step further. You have to do your own investigative work. And I just, I, I just suggest that all of us should be very careful. And if, if we don't understand that living in a democratic society is a continual experiment, it is much more difficult than any other type of society, we have in this society tremendous tensions that are put upon us because of the demands of our Constitution and the hard reality of existing in a difficult world. That tension we shouldn't be upset about. That's the thing that distinguishes us. And I disagree with my panelists that we live in a, uh, in a Prussian state. We don't. The existence of this debate negates that. But what we've got to do is live with that tension bear in mind these opposites and, and work with them and make sure that we don't ignore one to the exclusion of the other. That's the only way we're going to develop and grow as human beings and survive as a nation. I'd like to uh, add something to that. And it's really important that when you look at these documents, you do that. You look very closely at them. There is an exemption <coughs> that uh, prohibits the naming of innocent citizens. Now, I've gotten the papers of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And they have come in very full of deletions. All of the people who accuse a whole variety of women of being communists or fellow travelers, all the people who name these alleged communists or fellow travelers are deleted. But everybody accused of being a communist or a fellow traveler appears. So let's put it in its full context. Okay, what I'd like to do now is throw this open to questions. I, I would like to call on people, and I would ask you, please, rather than making speeches, let's have some questions, and if you like, you can direct it to uh, a panelist, or you can direct it to all of the panelists. Uh, all right, let's start in the back, okay? The gentleman standing up. Under the act, that, at least as we had, it had to be a pattern of practice. If you're talking about an isolated incident, it wouldn't apply. No, I'm talking about just revealing the identity of the station chief in Nicaragua. It wouldn't apply. 
Right. The, the situation you described, it would not apply. Uh, but I would have to say here there are currently two versions of the bill. The bill as passed by the House would possibly make the individual who reveals that information liable, and that is, I think, part of the problem that a lot of lawyers have with the House version of the bill. Uh, but some version of this legislation will be enacted quite soon. Good. This is a follow-up. Should you reveal that information or not? Okay. To whom? Well, I think, I think that each of us at various times in our lives have to face decisions where we make moral judgments, and, and I would not purport to make one for this, in this hypothetical situation. I think that each of us have to answer to ourselves whether we're doing the right thing, the proper thing from an overall perspective. It's the, the gentleman standing in the back there. <laughs> but Mr. Meyer knows as well as I do, in fact, he knows better than I do because he was in it up to his eyeballs. So there's a great deal of what the CIA has been involved in has nothing whatever to do with intelligence. It has to do with subversion. It has to do with overthrowing governments by force. This is what happened in Iran in 53 in the interest of the oil companies. It's what happened in Guatemala in 54 in the interest of, of United Fruit. It is what almost happened in Cuba. What is your question, sir? My question is, would Mr. Meyer agree that this protection of agents, that the classification of information on security grounds should apply only to the gathering of intelligence, not to subversive operations against foreign governments or individuals? Well, you, you raised the whole question of whether any kind of covert action is uh, desirable by or should be authorized uh, within the U.S. government. And here we have a very big problem, which I will try to be very brief in explaining. We have a situation where the Soviet Union, from its inception in 1917, became committed to the concept that it was its duty and its obligation as the first socialist state to bring to power throughout the world other communist parties. And since that time, with more or less consistency and purpose, they have pursued a course of trying to replace all existing governments where they had a chance with a Communist Party rule, which, when once established, suspended the democratic process and imposed instead a monolithic one-party state, as we have seen them occur in Eastern Europe and in many other countries where communists have come to power, so that you have in existence today, not a collection of democratic national states, each committed seriously to the principle of non-intervention. You have instead a much more complicated world in which there are democratic states functioning and third world dictatorships of various kinds, and then the communist major state in the Soviet Union and its satellites and allies. And what we have seen in the last 10 years is a very sharp increase in the level of geopolitical offensive waged by the Soviet Union to the point where now a number of countries that were not within its orbit have been brought within its orbit by this type of 
continuing subversive activity, whether it be uh, Angola, or whether it be South Yemen, whether it be Afghanistan by the force of arms. And we have seen in Poland the threat of 50 divisions on the Polish border being brought to bear to prevent the workers from asserting their own individual freedoms and rights. Now, when we face that kind of a situation, it seems to me that this country should not rule out the possibility of, be, of giving help to a Democratic Party under challenge from the Communist Party, which, if it wins, suspends the democratic process entirely. You mean the Democrats like in Guatemala and in I don't, right, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the no, Wait a minute, wait a minute. You, sir, I'm, sir, I'm sorry. We're, we're still going on to other, other questions here or um, follow-ups on that. I wonder if I could, you know, one of the things that's really fascinating in, in about covert operations is, is when you start looking at these documents that have, that have been released, if you look at Poland and Hungary in 1956, there's a real tragic question that emerges. And that tragic question is, what would have happened in Poland and Hungary, which were undergoing really internal reform, internal rebellion, internal democratization? You know, revolution is a process and not an event. And they were dealing in a very specific way, and it was being worked out, as everybody now knows, because of the party, the 20th Party Congress of 1956, which has been gotten, you know, I mean, we, we all know what these facts are. And what happened was that the CIA, Radio Free Europe, began to do a tremendous amount of organizing, a tremendous amount of money. We even have the figures now that were poured into Poland and to Hungary, which then polluted these internal changes. And it became not a question of what would have happened to Poland and Hungary if they'd gone through, you know, this organic process of change without the covert activities of the United States. This is, becomes a great tragic question. I'd like your is, answer to that. This is completely false. And I... Oh, well, we have the documents. If you no, read I, my book, wait they're in the book. I have a book out, and I've got a long chapter on the radio. <laughs> so we, I'll read but your book if you read my book. I will be glad to read your book. Okay. <laughs> but let's go back. Yeah, this is but, very but, complicated. I'll be as brief as I can. In the, in the Polish case, which was unique and different from the Hungarian case, the events were started with the secret speech of uh, Khrushchev in, uh, in early 56. And there began to be a movement for uh, a demand for change, a, a movement to get out the hardline communist leadership. And the movement reached such a point that Gomulka was brought back from jail and brought, in, brought back to power by the more moderate members of the Polish Communist Party. I, I really do not want this to turn into a, uh, either a historical session. Well, I mean, a statement session. was made. All right. All right. In the, in the Polish, let me finish now, please. In the Polish case. You're going to get one more minute. All right. And in the Polish case, in, in effect, the reform movement won. The role of Radio Free Europe was crucial to its effectiveness and to its success. Gomolka, in fact, asked for all jamming to be taken off RFE because its broadcast was specifically moderate and helpful to him. In the Hungarian case, a completely spontaneous revolution at its, at its beginning. In its last phase, it is quite true that the Hungarian desk of RFE got so carried away with the euphoria of the, of the occasion that they, uh, I think, made the mistake of quoting a British newspaper which said, in effect, that the UN would come to the help of the revolution before it was all over. That gave false encouragement to the freedom fighters. 
and should not have been done. But the role of the radio was very different as between the two instances. I just wanted to make that point. Okay, we just now have, uh, have heard uh, opinions based on no, presumably the same facts. So let us move on. I will remind our panelists and the audience that the issue at hand is government control of information. Yes, the gentleman in the back in the red sweater. Yes. Burgundy. Uh, may I ask Mr. Meyer and others to comment? In this national security word salad, perhaps the most consistent boilerplate is that it's a tough, cold world. And my question is whether or not you think it's arrogant and impertinent to compare this tough, cold world with the world that the framers found in the 18th century. I wonder what you think 1776 and the years before were like if you think this is a tough, cold world that justifies the kind of filthy tricks that you're apologizing for. I'm not apologizing. One question about impertinence, and the second question is, when you refer to democracies abroad, you assure us, Mr. Meyer, that you're not referring to the KCIA, the SABAC, the Dean of the Dissip, boss of South Africa, and a whole series of fascist states. Those wouldn't be the democracies abroad that you're referring to, secret police that we work with. But I want you finally to say who it was that cooperated in the overthrow in every case of democratically elected governments, Guatemala, Santo Domingo, Chile, Guyana, Indonesia, Iran, and other countries. The name, please, of the intelligence service that operated terror, torture, assassination, and the overthrow of democratically elected government. Let's take that Chile case. It's a good one to bring up. There's more factual error in the minds of people than one can imagine. Uh, just take the Chile case for, for an example, very briefly. Uh, the, the actual uh, move against the Allende government was ordered by Nixon in 1970 after he won a plurality in the 1970 election. Uh, that was Nixon's peculiar aberration. Nobody in the agency believed that should be done. Nobody thought it could be done, and nothing was done. Chile was later, Allende was later overthrown in 1973 without the knowledge of the agency. That's, that's true. All right, wait a minute, okay. That, we've had a question and answer. I'd now like to... Uh, so much for good intelligence. <laughs> I'd somewhat now like to turn to Mr. Whitman. Have a little order, please. the Freedom of Information Act and passed the issue of vindication bill is security, and security will protect us from terrorism. I would like to ask the panel to comment on the fact that the last three largest He was surrounded. He was 
assassinated. Reagan was attacked and almost assassinated despite intense security. It was intense security in Cairo. So what is the, what is the point about your security? Well, I think the answer to that is clear. Intelligence is distinct from security. Security is the, are the guards that surround the individual uh, and the methods that are taken to try to protect him, whether he be the pope or the president or whoever. Intelligence means that if you have a penetration of the terrorist organization that is planning the act, you know ahead of time what it is that they are planning to do, and you are capable thereby of preventing that event from taking place by alerting the potential victim. Now, there are a lot of statesmen in the world today and American ambassadors who are alive today because of just that kind of intelligence. Penetration of the opposing terrorist organization, whether it be the, the Red Army in Italy or the Beider Meinhof gang in Germany or one of the extreme PLO groups. That's what we're... In, yes. other, in other words, the only people are sad... No, I'm saying that in those cases where the individual is alive, he had advance warning and was able to protect himself. That, 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 yes? that raises a stunning question, doesn't it? Why have all these people been assassinated? It, can, it, it cannot be 100% of... It doesn't. Oh. <laughs> I, I would like to uh, right. refer uh, everybody to an article. Can we have a little, a little order in there? I'd like to refer everybody to an article by Fletcher Prouty, which is a very inflammatory article, actually, in a book called Uncloaking the CIA, in which he raises just these questions and points out that a lot of assassinations were so successful because they were done with CIA connivance. None. Uh, none. Claire Booth Luce and Cord Meyer say none. Let me play back to your words that you've uh, stated here today and ask you to respond to yourself. You have said that we do need a CIA because following Pearl Harbor, we need in place um, intelligence to report pending attacks. Was Chile going to attack us? I, I think you have, as I, as I tried to point out before, a, a very new kind of difficult problem now. You've got a situation where it is clear from the record in the last 10 years that the Soviet <coughs> Union is engaged in an expansionary <coughs> geopolitical offensive, attempting in effect to take over one government after another until they confront us uh, with a situation where we'd be uh, unintentionally isolated and cut off from all allies and resources. Permit, yeah, that is the objective. Right. Now, you just expanded the basis for also, I wonder whether you might criticize Mr. Kissinger for revealing certain things in his memoirs without uh, going to Clarence. Insofar as he did, I would certainly criticize him. Mr. Cody. Uh, in uh, the case of the uh, French edition, I think he's being sued for that. Yeah, the, uh, the most recent statement from... Uh, a Justice Department attorney is that he will even, the, ju the Justice Department will even prosecute former presidents if they have to to make these, uh, this new policy stick. Um, <laughs> all right, I, I'll look forward to that one. <laughs> the, the, the gentleman in the back there. That's a very good question because, in fact, I think much of this legislation is going to be passed and we might want to start thinking about 
how all of us will operate when that happens. Um, Charlie Renfrew, would you like to start by well, answering I, that? No, I, I, I think the question <laughs> was directed to you, Bob. You go ahead. <laughs> okay, sorry. Well, I'm a, I have to admit that I'm an optimist. Uh, that is, I think that this ultimately this attempt by uh, the state structure to build a legal wall of secrecy around it will have a very uh, large amount of difficulty working. Uh, and the, the ironies abound. Uh, for example, the, thus far at least, the classification agreement, the classification, the SNEP guidelines, et cetera, apply to CIA and intelligence people or people with access to classified information who publish books. They have not been applied thus far very consistently to people, for example, who publish columns like Mr. Meyer. Um, they also have not been applied to oral statements. So Thomas Powers wrote a really fine book on the CIA called Ri on Richard Helms, in which he talked, he says, in the preface to over 100 CIA officials, former and present, who told him about names, operations, modes of operating, sources, methods, all of the things that the CIA does, and he wrote about them without naming his sources. And uh, I think it would be very difficult for, even in the, even in the present in increasingly uh, uh, exaggerated reaction uh, and attempt to restart a Cold War, I think it would be very difficult to reach somebody like Mr. Powers. So I, I think that, uh, in fact, uh, assiduous reporters will continue to be able to report. I think most of the information that comes out comes out by leaks. I think that leaks will continue. I think they will, in fact, increase as the legitimacy of the operation of these bureaucracies uh, comes increasingly under question, and that this attempt by the agencies to protect themselves will ultimately be futile. Now, that may be a optimistic perspective, but that's I wasn't speaking only that building, but it increased uh, the potential to increase the dimension surveillance by the CIA, and then how would that affect working press and public accounts if the FBI is surveilling or even infiltrating catching the situation? Um, well, the interesting thing about the agency doing covert operations at home, uh, it are projecting an executive order to authorize that. Uh, the uh, unofficial scuttlebutt is, well, we just want to uh, operate with foreign, we want to help do foreign counterintelligence and operate with terrorist nets and what have you. A more likely possibility uh, would be for the CIA to do disinformation at home, uh, which it does abroad, uh, producing material for domestic consumption, which makes its point. Uh, it's done it in the past in, in, in a few cases. Chile is one example. I would say Richard Welch was a classic CIA disinformation operation. Uh, and uh, the uh, former agent McGee, he says that the books published around, the book published around the uh, 1965 coup in Indonesia is a, was a disinformation ploy. Uh, whether that's what they have in mind or not, I don't know. Uh, I th obviously, it gets more it gets more difficult, people can be intimidated, et cetera. But see, I think that the, I think that there's a consciousness that is very widespread in the society that these uh, people and their attitudes are outmoded and that in fact uh, they are not in the process of protecting our security, they're in the process of doing things that we don't want to be associated with anymore. And as long as that consciousness is, is uh, maintained by a significant segment of the population, I think it's very hard to keep people quiet. I think it's very hard to keep the press quiet, et cetera. Now, 
obviously major publishing houses and major newspapers may in fact become more and more uh, uh, intimidated and engage in greater and greater self-censorship. The history of the reason it worked for 20 years was that the New York Times and other newspapers censored themselves. The Times didn't reported the information it had on the Bay of Pigs, for example. Uh, and that, if, if the President and the administration is successful in reestablishing a kind of Cold War frenzy here, that in fact could begin again. But I think, I must say, I think it's very unlikely. Well, I, okay. Uh, I would just say that I have found it increasingly difficult in, uh, given the new mood in Washington, to uh, operate in this area, and that I, I am worried about the consequences of some of this legislation. Uh, that's just my personal experience as a working chair. Uh, and by the way, I would say that these in our institutions uh, self-censor all the time. There are stories that we, there was information we obtained during the Iranian hostage episode, which we did not print because we thought it might endanger uh, lives of Americans and others overseas. And there were, I don't think there was a newspaper in the, in the country that was seriously following that that didn't find itself in a similar situation. I just think it's a very difficult balance, a very difficult call. Um, let's see, the woman with her hand up back there. Well, on, the, on the, the question of the nuclear industry, I think, is very important. The, uh, the NRC has applied to extend the uh, extraordinary uh, legal uh, protections for atomic secrecy to both its plans for waste uh, storage and its plans for the transportation of uh, nuclear uh, products and, and wastage. The reason it uses for trying to apply the atomic energy provisions, which are the most which are basically an official secrets act. To that is that uh, obviously we don't want those things to be uh, exposed to terrorists, which is a compelling reason. The fact is, of course, that it is also very upsetting to people if they find out that nuclear products are uh, being uh, rooted through their cities in uh, canisters on the back of trucks, and they get very upset, and city councils try to meet and get them out of the city, etc. And so it also has the effect of forestalling some of that public <coughs> opposition. I think you'll find more and more attempt to, cr to extend this secrecy shield and extend it with greater and greater legal teeth to it uh, to things like the location of nuclear uh, waste disposals, to where nuclear missiles are, to where uh, bases will be carrying nuclear missiles in Europe, which will be designed, which will be, will use the terrorist excuse, which is the modern version of the communist excuse in the old days to try to control this information which upsets people greatly and which feeds a debate against nuclear power or, or nuclear weapons. I'd like to call on uh, David Burnham in the back. Uh, Mr. Renford, <laughs> you feel that the NSA operations listening into all telexes going in and out of the country and the NSA moves to uh, review all research <coughs> Feel that's constitutional, both of those things, and proper in an open democracy, open 
Society? Well, I, I, don't, I don't have the same knowledge <coughs> that you do about Walt that NSA does, but uh, I don't see, I don't, I think, yes, I think, I think it is constitutionally permissible and it is consistent with an open government, yes. Yes, I do. <coughs> Gentleman in the back. Yeah. Yes, I'd like to uh, make a question a little bit. When I took the uh, Bob Morris Age sort of closely view of the risks facing writers and others from government repression, you know, such as <coughs> CIA surveillance bills, uh, sort of things that coming period, it seems to me that, at least the way I read the situation that we have today, it's not so much that the government is trying to whip up Cold War hysteria. Seem to be in the process of preparing both militarily and politically to fight a hot war in the near future. It seems like Mr. Myers, you know, familiar pronouncements about the Soviet danger, etc., are you know part of the process of uh, educating the American public. With regard to the writers and others, for example, who are hostile to these war preparations on the part of our own government, it seems to me clear that the tag of KGB <coughs> agent. Our agent influence and terrorist uh, is going to be applied indiscriminately to all those who oppose these war preparations and come into motion against them. And that, therefore, any repression will be legal, you know, using those tags. What, what is your question? That, my question basically is for Mr. Bosses and others to expand a little bit more on the potential motion of what's going to be happening in this country in an international situation that affects Risk yeah, no, I think that's fair. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be misunderstood. What I meant to say was, I don't think it's possible for them to stem the flow of information as long as there's not a so social consensus on what America ought to be doing in the world of some major proportions. That's not to say that writers who challenge the government policy and who report articles that challenge that policy are not going to go through enormous uh, duress. I mean, if you're Frank Snap. Uh, it may be fine that Borsas says information is still going to come out, but you've got to pay uh, the CIA back anything you made on a book that you spent a couple of years writing. And that is going to be extended, and, the, and I think you'll see criminal prosecutions, and I think you'll see it, writers, yes, uh, bearing, as they often do for the society, uh, the weight of making certain that uh, information gets out and speech gets out, etc. And I don't want to be seen as saying, look, no one's going to suffer, it's all right. I wanna but I do think that, that, on the other hand, I think people ought not be pessimistic about our strength. I want to just add one thing to that. You know, you really should look again at the COINTELPRO documents to see the patterns that existed and allegedly were suspended in, in 1971 or 72, and the kinds of dirty tricks that befell every black uh, and civil rights and peace organization. There's one stunning document that was the in FBI, which, it? yes, it was the FBI, but since the CIA is going to be doing what the FBI was mandated to do, we can get some understanding of the kinds of things involved. Uh, there's one stunning document which the FBI um, issued. Uh, I 
I think she wanted to comment, and she's going to get a right to comment, and Mr. Meyer will be able to respond if he wants to. No. And I'll be running the The, the document which we got because the FOIA existed is a statement saying, we can accuse David Hilliard of stealing Black Panther Party funds. And an agent, FBI agent, wrote back saying, well, that's not a very nice thing. We have no evidence. And the document came back. Another letter came back saying, well, it doesn't matter whether we have evidence. It is destabilizing. I don't think they use that word. It's sufficiently useful to say that he did whether he did or not, do you see? And that's the kind of thing that you see over and over and over again. That's it, called misinformation. Well, if that concerns you, and I, and I think it legitimately should concern everybody, I think we should apply it to ourselves, and I think we shouldn't be disingenuous and say the uh, COINTEL, which may have stopped in 71, it did stop in the 60s. and, and, and and it wasn't, and I, I don't think there's any evidence that it didn't. St no, no, wait a minute. No, you've got to know the facts. And if you, if you want to argue a motion, like great. But if you want to argue facts, you've Tell got to look at the facts. It was discontinued. As a matter of fact, the whole thing came up with Nixon because Nixon tried to reinstate it, and J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't go along with it. He overruled the president. And that's why the FBI found itself this extraordinary position of the president saying one thing and Hoover saying something completely different. It was absolutely an amazing phenomenon. That is, that is correct. All right, let's move on to another uh, question. The gentleman in the back. It has no reference to any naming of agents, and therefore is no, in no way touched by the bill. I, I think that's uh, that's correct. But that in it, speaking of government control of information, the white paper <coughs> is a very interesting uh, example of uh, of uh, the way in, in which governments sometimes attempt to influence the way in which the public thinks about an issue. And I think that's a, a very difficult issue to legislate. Uh, do you want to say something, yeah, there is a. There's been a lot of talk about leaks, and as a journalist myself, I, I, I batten on them, and I like to get them when they're uh, in my direction, and I have used them on occasion. But there are problems with leaks when they go to the heart of very serious security matters, that in, and they involve the future possible survival of the country as a whole. And there also is a problem with leaks when they are, in fact, misinformation leaks. And as credulous <coughs> press eats them up and replays them as if they were the truth. That kind of danger was exemplified in the series of leaks that came out, I think it was in July, concerning uh, the charge that an operation was in the works uh, directed, the CIA had been directed to in some way overthrow Gaddafi. The first leak was in the Washington Post, and it referred to a letter from the House Intelligence Committee 
saying that it had protested such an, op an unknown operation to the president. The next leak was the really damaging one and the, and the misinformation. It was a big <laughs> story in the Newsweek magazine that Sunday, which in effect said that the operation has now been identified the object was to overthrow Gaddafi with a combination of paramilitary action and uh, uh, possible assassination. And next, the next leak was that it wasn't uh, aimed at Libya at all, but at Mauritania. This came from the White House. And the last <laughs> leak was from the Wall Street Journal, which said, not so. The operation was a, a minor operation directed at trying to prevent Gaddafi from subverting the government in Mauritius preparatory to the establishment of a Soviet base. That was the true story. The extraordinary okay. fact is that the Newsweek story was, couldn't have been more damaging because it left the impression that any kind of COVID operation, if undertaken and cleared with the Congress, would immediately leak and it put the worst possible construction, a false construction, on the actual nature of the project in question. It could only, it seems to me, have been mounted by people who were desirous to abort any kind of COVID activity. It was revealed in a, in a very long and detailed account of the hostage episode by Terry Smith, which appeared in an entire uh, issue. It was the entire magazine, uh, how uh, the hostage incident from beginning to end. And uh, obviously, I mean, you don't even have to, to uh, imagine what, it, what the kinds of things were, but the Canadian journalist who sat on the information that his ambassador was hiding several Americans in his house. I mean, these are fairly uh, obvious kinds of, kinds of things. <coughs> uh, in general, it's very difficult for newspapers to make the decision that they're not going to go with a particular story, and I think more often than not, they do not. They, you know, we, we print what we know. We, we may not know as much as we'd like to. We, we may know part of a story. We may be relying on misinformation or bad information. But I, I think, in general, the, uh, the notion that news organizations sit on things to protect the national security is, uh, is not right. Uh -oh. Yes? I'm going to have two questions for you and you. I'm sorry, I'm going to age you. You uh, mentioned uh, Jesuit and Catholic elements in the CIA. <laughs> 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 we are referring to AG, and if so, why? I was just referring to uh, what seems to be a tendency that uh, many of the most uh, famous CIA whistleblowers are of the Catholic religion. Ag was educated at Notre Dame uh, and was an all sort of an all-American boy, and went into the CIA as he writes in his diary to defend the free world, and then became disillusioned. And I think that I didn't was not trying to cast an aspersion. I just think that the, the sense of a very strong moral code uh, and that the United States carried that moral sword for many years and then many people found that it, we may not have been on the white, white hats and several of those reflected that uh, and they have uh, I, I just say that my 
newspaper has a, does have a policy with which I agree, and that is that because I am a reporter and I am covering this and other issues, it is not my job or it is not really my privilege at this point to offer personal opinions, nor should I. Um, I can give you arguments in favor of and opposed to the New York Times position, but uh, I myself would prefer to beg off that. Okay. Uh, Cord, do you have anything to say about Catholics or Jesuits? In no, the I don't, but I do have something to say about A.G. because I was in London when he first began his, uh, his, his book publishing episode there. And there are a couple of things to remember about Mr. A.G. Uh, one, he was eventually kicked out of England uh, by the British government after a long hearing on the ground that he was maintaining relationships with foreign intelligence officers detrimental to the security of His Majesty's government. Her Majesty's government. <laughs> and uh, her Majesty's government. And I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating. Uh, but uh, uh, he, he, he was then... <laughs> he was then... You heard it here first, right? <laughs> he was then uh, subsequent... He was then subsequently, uh, for the say, uh, similar reasons, uh, ejected from France and from Holland. And uh, uh, I leave to your speculation as to what, who those, ag those foreign intelligence agencies, agencies were. The woman in the red dress. On the Denton hearings, uh, Mr. Denton came to Congress and he was famous for uh, suggesting that there be uh, a bill that would make adultery a criminal crime punish, uh, punished by uh, capital punishment, <laughs> which I thought was a clear and present danger to most writers. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the hearings have followed that same course. Uh, they, what he's done, Denton is part of a process. He's not very well respected by his colleagues, I'm told. Uh, the process is one of providing semi-official or official forums in which uh, the kind of new, uh, the new Cold War, the new paranoia gets uh, uh, exposed and gets a hearing, a sympathetic hearing. And he's had uh, the, the classic lineup of witnesses, as you can imagine, Robert Moss and Deborchgrove and Claire Sterling, etc. Thus far, uh, the press has covered, the, covered those hearings with, I think, a proper amount of levity, and uh, they haven't had a major effect. Obviously, they do have a major effect, as HUAC did, or other things do, when the climate, or if and when the climate of opinion changes. In the Heritage Foundation report on internal security, the recommendation was that the president make a series of speeches on the reality of the threat of internal security to internal security, which is, according to them, greater than it's ever been, and that av having made those speeches that uh, House and Senate committees be established to hold hearings and to uh, do investigations, that a variety of secrecy arrangements, uh, legislation be passed, that a new executive order on the intelligence agencies be issued that gives them greater power to do internal surveillance, et cetera. 
as you can tell, m many of those things are put into place. What we haven't had is the president leading the charge yet <coughs> in a consistent way. Um, and uh, if and when, obviously, if it's possible to recreate a climate of fear in the country, then the Denton hearings will be very serious indeed. Okay. Uh, would anybody like to say a good word about the Denton hearings? I mean, have, have, do any of the p panelists feel that they've accomplished anything useful at all? I would like to <laughs> respond to the other half of the question. <laughs> so much for Denton. <laughs> uh, as far as uh, right-wing terrorist groups functioning in this country, <coughs> such as the uh, extreme right-wing uh, Salvadorian businessmen functioning, as I understand it, in Miami, uh, I am very clear in my mind, and I have written so in a column, that the FBI should get after them immediately, and that they should not uh, be permitted to continue, and if they do continue, they should be arrested and tried under the law. And uh, it is a real problem. The Salvador's government is being threatened from both sides, the extreme right and the extreme left. And uh, quite aside from that, there's, we have no business, it seems to me, allowing such terrorist operations to be financed and, and run from, from this from our country. I'm totally against it. Okay, this gentleman here. Uh, it seems to me that uh, as writers at a writer's congress, uh, we're obviously one of the most relevant things that we're interested in is the use of words. And a lot of the questions have been addressed to this. And uh, a number of people have asked questions uh, of uh, Mr. Meyer regarding how he would reconcile the use of phrases like uh, first line of defense against terrorism and advance warning of potential attack with things like Iran and the Bay of Pigs and so on. Now, my question is this. As a person who uh, has written on occasion on medical subjects and has so had uh, access to medical statistics uh, on Guatemala, I'm aware of the uh, rather striking fact that uh, over the last 27 years since the CIA helped to overthrow a reform government in Guatemala, literally hundreds of thousands of deaths have occurred in the area of maternal and infant mortality because of the fact that the Guatemalan government simply doesn't give a shit about uh, its people, its ordinary people and that when there was an effort to do something about this <laughs> that the uh, CIA and uh, uh, President Eisenhower participated in the overthrow of this effort. Now, I'd like to know, therefore, why I, as a writer who, in the context in which you, uh, Mr. Former Assistant Attorney General, uh, spoke of responsible writers, uh, would call myself an irresponsible journalist, uh, why I should really be uh, upset or concerned about the safety and welfare of CIA agents who participated in the death of hundreds of thousands of mothers and children in Guatemala. I find that an utter puzzle, and I wish some members of the panel would tell me why I, or any other responsible American writer, should really give a damn what happens to the people that SNAP uh, tells about. <laughs> I don't think he means. Um, 
I, I, I guess is <laughs> one of the answers is I guess it depends on what you how you view other human beings those that you know and those you don't know those with whom you agree and those with whom you disagree and it depends on what value you place on human life and I guess I can't say it any any simpler than that I don't know all of the facts to which you refer about the CIA killing hundreds of thousands of children I don't I don't know about this I do know that 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 it is important that we each value all lives and that it is terribly important not to say because I disagree with the CIA therefore I am perfectly willing to let all CIA agents abroad be killed seems to me not to have the level of sophisticated thinking necessary to operate in a responsible way this gentleman over here What is your question? My question is coming to a very specific issue in terms of the deaths of homosexuals from peculiar diseases, which has been reported in the press. Uh, and the question is, is this unpopular group being biologically attacked now? And the question is, Well, let me tell you, I come from San Francisco, and they're alive and well in San Francisco. <laughs> All right, Bo uh, Bob Cutner in the back, please. I'd like to put another question. Uh, it, I, I find it fascinating to hear senators and congressmen speak about the value of the Freedom of Information Act as the bedrock of open and responsible government, and yet no one puts their, them to the test of it by having the Freedom of Information Act a applicable to the Congress. I think it's an extraordinary thing yeah. that, that the writers and the press really haven't put pressure on the Congress if they say they believe it to be a very valuable thing why they don't apply it to themselves. I think we have, yes. <laughs> Holmes never wrote his memoirs. <coughs> but that, excuse me, that was, that was, that was Mr. Holmes did not participate except for one interview in that book. And he didn't get any money for it either. Obviously not. He's in a, he is in a position of authority within the government to make those decisions. All right. But he is a, a, a member of the government. Well, what, how are you going to cope with the problem I tried to define? Uh, <laughs> it's a right under the First Amendment. That's how 
No, but I mean, what, what are you going to do about the problem that a person that is, is within the intelligence community and works there and gets access to well, a great deal of, of very sensitive information, uh, then uh, when he tries to write uh, about what is not sensitive, how can he be sure that what he has written is not going to be terribly helpful to the KGB unless he does clear it? No, they are applied to. I had to clear my book. All right. Uh, let me ask Mr. Marvin. Cord, do you do you submit every article that you publish? I don't write on the past. It's only when you're writing on intelligence matters. But everything that you write on intelligence matters is uh, is, is, is current submitted? since I left the agency. Current. Okay. All right. It's Frank Snap. Do you have a question? I think there's a certain amount of discretion involved in any Justice Department. All right, that is no, that no, is that is the that is the Justice Department's position. Well, I I, I wonder if, if Judge Renfrew, I mean, you you said before words of uh, support for the SNEP decision, which I I was rather stunned by, I must admit. I mean, if if we have any legitimacy left as a as a freedom of press, democratic country. I think this is one of the most unconstitutional uh, cases. Well, you know? surely. I mean, what but, is that standard? But see, you're putting yourself in a position to make a constitutional determination. And that may be satisfactory from your point of view. But I think from a perspective of the Constitution, historically, it's far better that the constitutional judgments be made by the Supreme Court. And the and Supreme, the Supreme Court, Court follows the election returns. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, you've got a glib answer for everything, and it's all a conspiracy. But I don't think that that deals with the fact that the Supreme Court has a responsibility, and the justices I know do not follow elections return. Nor do I think that uh, that that that's of immediate concern to them when they try to determine whether or not this contract of itself is in violation of any terms of uh, the Constitution. And Mr. Snepp uh, entered into a contract. He gave his assent. He didn't have to accept the contract, as I understand it. Be no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that there's a...
Attorney General that's fashioned the principle that led to my case. Not the Supreme Court, it merely was uh, uh, reaffirming or affirming the principles which he came up with, which in fact uh, were Jerry Bill principles, uh, oh. drawn okay. from a lot of different pieces of law. Uh, I was not sued for breach of contract, I was sued for breach of fiduciary obligation. That's why I was in poverty. A constructive trust was established. Yes, I, okay. I understand um, that. I, I do think there's a there's a legal point here that's that's a serious one that ought to not be uh, just dismissed, which is there's no question that the First Amendment is going to come under assault over the next years, and there's no question that the Supreme Court is going to be uh, adopting or legitimating in its own way some of that assault. And one of the responsibilities that all of us have as citizens, and certainly we have a special trust as writers, is to maintain. Uh, our own understanding about what the First Amendment means, not let that be uh, whittled away by a Supreme Court that's now dominated by conservatives or by a national security state structure that's in crisis, and maintain the argument that these things are in fact unconstitutional and not let them take the First Amendment away from us piece by piece. This gentleman here has been seeking to ask a question. So. Okay. As long as it's a question. Well, let's go to the question. Mr. Meyer happens to be my punching bag at this point, and, or Pivik, however you want to put it. How could you support retaining, retaining legal classifications of the names and addresses of agents or perpetrate in legitimizing Big Brother in the U.S. and abroad? What I'm trying to say is how could you go around being an apologist for those I think I think I think that's enough. I'm going to move I'm going to move on to uh, this lady over here. This is a very real problem. Um, what I wrote in that article many years ago was that presidents don't have private papers, especially when they deal with foreign policy. Um, I think there is a line. I think that line is very uh, discussable, debatable, unclear, unclear in my own mind uh, in terms of private lives. But there's no doubt in my mind that the papers of presidents and government officials, CIA directors, ultimately, um, should be ultimately considered public papers. Now, the way uh, it used to be, that changed very recently, was that presidential papers were private family papers. So that, for instance, to find out what, uh, who supported Eisenhower, who supported him, uh, one would have to go to the family and get the 1952 and 1956 permission from the family to see what they said were those were all business papers, were private papers. Now, we could say in a country whose business is business, that's not acceptable. I would argue that. Uh, then we get to whether or not uh, people are having affairs. Is that in a, a private paper or not? Uh, 
of course it's a private paper. Um, that raises lots of other issues. So, there, so that is something I'm perfectly willing to have long theoretical discussions about. But I'm not willing to have a long theoretical discussion about uh, whether or not president's papers are private or public or congressional papers are private or public. Now, there are models that I think are really usable. And one is that you said we should have a Freedom of Information Act for the, for the Congress. Well, in fact, in some ways, we don't need one so much as we do for the executive, because the Senate Foreign Relations, uh, I'm sorry, you know, Foreign Relations Committee agreed to declassify and, and reveal everything after X number of years. I think it's 12, maybe now it's 25. Um, the State Department had an agreement to publish everything within 20 years. Now it's 30 years, and now the CDC, as I said in the beginning, is going to classify everything again. Um, so I think these are models. I mean, I'm perfectly willing not to know things if, uh, you know, uh, it's really a matter of urgent national security. But what is a matter of urgent national security that's 30 years old, do you see? Um, unless we're continuing really very scuzzy things that nobody should know. Well, we need to know that then, don't we, if we are uh, a democracy? Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Maybe perhaps the, th the issue we're really getting to and, and maybe should end on is, is, the, is the, the question that's been raised is, is twofold, and that is one, what kinds of information should be regarded as national security information that should legitimately be classified and not disclosed? And secondly, who will make that decision? Is it going to be the courts? Is it going to be the Congress? Is it going to be individual news organizations? Or is it going to be an individual agent or ex-agent who decides that something that isn't public should be? And the issue of who will ultimately decide what is to become public is perhaps even more important than the information itself. Uh, thank you very much for your participation, spirited participation. I'm sorry if I couldn't get to all of you. You were a great chair. Very, very neatly done. What's that? Oh, not too often. I mean, I was there just this week on a roller coaster. Are you based in one? Not, not yes. Okay.